like to begin this morning in the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place where thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Joshua and the children of Israel have just crossed over Jordan. They're facing their first challenge, and what a challenge it is, because they must take the city of Jericho. Joshua had been instructed the Lord in Joshua chapter 1 that the Lord said, I'll be with you as I was with Moses. Joshua had been a companion of Moses. He had seen firsthand how God had been with Moses. And now the Lord said, I'm going to be with you in the exact same way. He said, no man shall be able to stand before thee. And everywhere the sole of your foot shall go shall be yours for possession. The land of Canaan was a land that was a good land. It was the promised land. It was a land that God had promised to give unto Israel for an inheritance. But there were seven nations greater and mightier than Joshua and Israel in that land. Now I want to emphasize that. There were seven nations in the land of Canaan. Some of them were the sons of Anakim, which were giants in that land. They had great walled cities in that land. And those nations were greater and mightier than Israel. But God had promised to fight their battles for them and to go with them and to go ahead of them. Now Joshua had all this information that he had received of the Lord. And they had crossed Jordan's river. And now the Lord appears to him as the captain of the Lord of hosts. That word captain means prince. But he's the captain. He's the leader. It's going to be very important for Joshua to understand at this time that he was second in command. There was one above him, the supreme commander in chief, the Lord, who appears to him. Now it's important for us to all remember we're not in charge. There's one greater than I, one greater than you. We have a commander-in-chief, and he's in heaven's pure world. Now, he's a God of commandments, and he expects us to take heed to those commandments and to do those commandments, doesn't he? In the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, the first time this expression is used is when after God had created all things, and he created man the sixth and final day of creation, that he speaks unto Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, he says unto Adam, he says, Now thou mayest freely eat of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, exception going to be a tree that's the knowledge of good and evil. He said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now the Lord gave a commandment unto Adam. And notice the leeway he gave Adam. I don't know how many trees was in the Garden of Eden. It had to be a lot of them. He said, of all these trees in the garden, Adam, you can eat of any of them except one. And that's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And we know as we go into chapter 3, that Satan comes along as a serpent. And he speaks to the woman. He beguiles the woman. And she's going to take some fruit off of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she's going to give it unto Adam, and Adam is going to eat that fruit, and he's going to disobey God's commandment. Now, I want to say that God's commandments are not recommendations. And God's commandments are, do not make up a, a book of advice. Now, the best advice I can ever give anybody would be to keep the commandments of God. The best recommendation I can make to anybody would be to keep the commandments of God. But the Bible's not a book of recommendations. The Bible's not a book, uh, you know, just wise sayings and good advice to help you along life's pathway. It is a book of commandments, even in the New Testament. Now, he gave a commandment unto Adam, 
a commandment Adam could have kept, but he didn't. So the Lord comes walking in the cool of the day, and he speaks first of all unto Adam, and Adam and Eve now recognize that they're naked. Now they've been naked all along, but there wasn't a recognition of it because there was no sinful nature with inside of them. And the Lord said, Who has told thee, Adam, that thou art naked? Hast thou transgressed my commandment that I gave unto thee? Of course, the Lord knew he had. Then he spoke to the, well, Adam says, Well, the woman you made me <laughs> brought it to me. So he spoke to the woman about it. And the woman says, Well, the serpent beguiled me. We see how man's nature has manifested itself early on, isn't it? By passing the buck, by not taking responsibility, by not being accountable for your own self. You always want to blame someone else. You always want to think it's somebody else's fault. Um, you know, when the children were at home, four of them, uh, it was always easy to put the blame on them when the remote control got lost. It was always easy to blame them when the, car, the keys of the car got lost. All kinds of, well, they all got away. And so that just left me and Karen. <laughs> I won't tell you what, how that went. Uh, but anyway... Uh, we're famous and well known for just passing the buck, always wanting to make someone else responsible. This morning we got in the car and Karen told me, she says, you left the car, open, car door open all night last night. Well, I just couldn't hardly believe I did that, but I knew I was the last one to get out of it last night, so I just had to take responsibility for it. <laughs> I didn't have an out for that. So we see that God gave a commandment. Now, how... how uh, devastating was that commandment that was broken. Romans 5, 12, wherefore by one man, that's man Adam, wherefore by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men for all is sent. By breaking that commandment of God, sin came into this world. As a result of sin coming into this world, we have death. We have death spread over all humanity. All humanity, there's no exceptions to this. Wherefore, but one man sinned in the world, and death by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all is sinned. Okay? So we see the seriousness of obeying God's law and God's commandment, do we not? A little bit later, we find where God is going to destroy this earth by a flood. But there's a man named Noah that finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the Lord comes and he talks to Noah. And he tells Noah what he's planning to do. And he tells Noah to build an ark. He tells exactly how to build it. He gives him the dimensions of the ark. In other words, the blueprint for the ark. And uh, it's to be three stories. It's to have a wind at the top. It's to have a door in the side. It's to be so long, so wide, so high. And gives him all these instructions. In the last verse of Genesis chapter 6, it says, And Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Everything that Noah was commanded of God to do, Noah did it. And the last thing before that is this, and Noah entered into the ark, and all the animals that God commanded him to bring on to the ark, he come on to the ark. There were seven of the clean animals, male and female, and there were two of the unclean, because once that they got out of the ark, after the flood, they were going to make some offerings and sacrifices, these additional uh, animals that was in the clean category. And then it says, and the Lord shut the door. Now, I want you to get the picture here. The door was not shut till Noah had done all that God commanded him to do. He built the ark exactly like God told him to build it. He made it out of gopher wood just like God said to make it out of gopher wood. Uh, Noah didn't have the freedom and the liberty to consider this and think, well, you know, I saw in the flyer today that Noah, Lowe's has a sale on oak wood. And, uh, you know, I can buy oak cheaper than I can buy gopher wood. He didn't, he didn't do anything like that. The Lord said make it out of gopher wood. He was specific about that, so Noah made it out of gopher wood. The blueprint called for the ark to be so long, so high, so wide, he made it exactly like that. The ark was supposed to have one window in it, one door in it. He made it just exactly like that. Noah didn't have the liberty or the freedom or the authority to consider all this and say, well, you know, I'd kind of like two doors. If I had two doors, I could get everybody on there quicker. I wouldn't mind having two windows that have more light coming into the ark than just one window. No, he didn't think like that. He didn't perform like that. He did everything exactly as God commanded him. Three times in chapter 7, we'll find where it said Noah did all that God commanded. Four different times where it's emphasized that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. Take a look at the life of Moses. The book of Exodus has 40 chapters in it. Beginning in chapter 25, the Lord gives instructions unto Moses to build a tabernacle. Just like he gave instructions 
a blueprint for Noah to build an ark. He gives a blueprint and instructions for Moses to build the tabernacle. So from chapters 25 to the end of the book of Exodus are details about that tabernacle. God gives far more instructions and details to us to read and study about the tabernacle than he does creation. One chapter on creation. So Moses builds the tabernacle just exactly like God said, just like God showed him in the mount. We come to the 39th chapter, the last two chapters of Exodus, and you find this expression that Moses did all that God commanded him 17 times. Nine times in chapter 39, eight times in chapter 40. 17 times in the last two chapters of Exodus, we're told that Moses did all that God commanded. Now, why didn't God just tell us that one time? Why didn't he go through the details? Like chapter 39 gives us the details of the garments for the priesthood that Aaron and his sons was to put on. And after he gives some instructions, one thing he says, as God commanded Moses. Then some more instructions, as God commanded Moses. Why not just skip all that and wait till he gave us all those instructions, then say, God did all that, Moses did all that God commanded him. Well, I guess the Lord wanted to emphasize to us it's important to do all that God commands us, right? <laughs> So 17 times in those last two chapters, it says that Moses did all that God commanded him. And notice what happened after the last time it said in the 40th chapter, in the last few verses, it says, and the work was finished. And then the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the cloud that God gave to God and direct them came down upon the tabernacle. And when it rested there, they were to stay. And when it moved, they were to move and follow that tabernacle, excuse me, follow that cloud, pillar of cloud in the daytime, a pillar of fire at night. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When did the glory of the Lord fill the tabernacle? When the tabernacle was finished. When was the tabernacle finished? When Moses done all that God commanded him to do. There was a lot of parts to this, wasn't it? It was seven pieces of furniture that go on the inside of the tabernacle. Tabernacle had to be built with certain materials, had to be built with certain dimensions, etc., etc. And Moses deviated not one time in any of that, but built it exactly like God showed him in the mount, you see. Now, those commandments that God gave unto Moses was extremely important. Then God gave commandments unto the nation of Israel. He gave them three sets of laws. He gave them the ceremonial law. He gave them the moral law, the Ten Commandments. He gave them the laws to live by. Governmental laws, you might say. And you come to the 28th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll find where the Lord instructs them through Moses for them to keep his statutes and his commandments. And if so, if they did, he would bless them. But if they did not, he would curse them. And when you read the blessings to begin with, and then start reading the curses, it's just the opposite of what all the blessings were. So it was emphasized time and time again how important it was for God's people to keep the commandments of God. He is our commander-in-chief. Now, this is the lesson that Joshua is to learn here in the end of Joshua chapter 5. Before he goes out in the fights against those in Jericho, that city, he's to learn he's second in command. And he's to recognize there's a commander-in-chief, the captain of the Lord of hosts, who appears to him on this particular occasion right here. Now, when he first appears, Joshua asks him, Who art thou? Are you for us or for our adversaries? See, there was no compromise with Joshua. Joshua was a military man. Joshua had fought in many battles prior to this. He was an experienced soldier. He sees a man with a sword in his hand. And he asks the question, are you for us or are you against us? <laughs> One way or the other. It's kind of like Moses was that time when he came down from the mount. And the children of Israel had gone into gross idolatry and making that golden calf as Aaron had been left down there and Aaron took the earrings and one thing and another from everybody and he made the golden calf and they were dancing around it. And it's amazing how swiftly they went back into idolatry once God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And so Moses and Joshua comes down from the mount and they hear the sound and Moses interprets one way and Joshua the other way. And uh, it's interesting sometimes how two people will hear the same thing and one think one thing and one think another. The Lord uh, blessed Karen now to go down to um, uh, Brother Chris McCool, the church he served, Zion Primitive Baptist Church down in Gordo, outside of Tuscaloosa. Had a wonderful day yesterday. Just the Lord blessed, I thought, immeasurably. Had a wonderful time of fellowship Friday night in the church services yesterday morning, yesterday afternoon. And at lunch, I'm talking to a good friend of mine from Birmingham. 
and he, he tells me something, and I answer him. We get home, and Karen says, I was a little surprised the way you answered him. I said, why is that? She says, but here's, here's what he said. No, I said, here's what he asked you. And we both understood what he said, but she thought he meant one thing, and I thought he meant the other. So I just called him up to find out because it was really important because I want to make sure I answered him correctly. And for one time in a long time, I was right. <laughs> it's rare. It's very rare. But, but, but I was right on this occasion. Thankfully, I was right. <laughs> we both heard the same thing. She took it one way and I took it another. So Joshua, he, he's a man, he was a man that didn't compromise. He wanted to, are you for us or are you against us? Well, when they came down that mountain, you're going to find when Mo, Joshua thought it was a sound of victory, but Moses said, no, no. He says it's a sound uh, of eating and drinking and, and carrying on one thing and another. And they got down there, but eventually we're going to find where the Lord, where Moses draws a line here. He says, now, uh, those who are on the Lord's side, come over here. You're going to be one side or the other. Those on the Lord's side, come over here. And the Levites went over there, and many people were slain that day because they didn't cross the line and make a decision to be on the Lord's side. Moses, Joshua was not a man of compromise, as you well know. One of the most famous sayings that you find hanging on people's walls is this is found in Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua said, Choose you this day whom you shall serve. Whether it be the God of your fathers on the other side of the floods, the God of the Amorites whose land we dwell, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a man who... Uh, you could depend on what he was saying, right? He was not a man of compromise. He was black and white one way or the other, either for us or against us. And that's the question he asked this man right here. Joshua's going to learn the lesson that there's a commander in chief and he's second in command, which is important for him, but it's important for me to understand that as well. God is a God who gives commands. Let's, let's take a look in Psalms 111 verse 9. In Psalms 111 verse 9, the writer tells us here, for the Lord has sent redemption to his people, says, he hath commanded his covenant forever. And here's a command of God. Here's a command of the commander-in-chief. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Now notice the first part of that verse. He says, he has sent redemption to his people. He has a people he sent redemption to. Why did he send redemption to them? Because redemption was not available on this earth. This is kind of a counterpart of Matthew 121. When the angel comes to Joseph and says unto him, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Psalms 111 verse 9 is kind of a, the same thing in the Old Testament. He sent redemption, where? To his people. The redemption he sent his people is in the person of the Redeemer, who was the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our great Redeemer. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. He sent redemption, who? To his people. To all people? No, to his people. There's a difference in all people and his people. And his people belong to God in an everlasting arrangement, everlasting covenant. He says he hath commanded his covenant forever. So what covenant is this? There's various covenants in the Bible. Well, God gave a covenant to Israel on Mount Sinai. He gave the covenant of circumcision. But that wasn't forever. That would end in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a covenant that God has commanded forever that you need to have uh, an interest in because you're embraced in it. It's called an everlasting covenant. Listen to what David said in 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are some of uh, my favorite verses to think about from time to time. It says, these be the last words of the sweet psalmist Israel. Notice how he expresses this. This is David we're talking about. And he says he's a psalmist, but he's a sweet psalmist of Israel. When I read all the psalms, which David's not the author of all of them, but most of them, I can certainly say he was the sweet psalmist of Israel, can't you? The sweet psalmist of Israel. And he speaks about how a man that rules and reigns must rule and reign as a, as a sky without clouds and without rain. In other words, his goal and desire is to reign in a perfect way, in a righteous way. Well, David had been king. But he said, although my house be not so with God. That's not, hadn't been the case with me. Although my house be not so with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordering all things and sure, although he maketh it not to grow. See how personal this is? It should be with you and with me here. He hath made with me an everlasting covenant. You can say the same thing. God has made with you an everlasting covenant. If you love the Lord, you're embraced in the everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant means that covenant is never going to change. 
An everlasting covenant means that covenant's never going to be altered. That covenant's never going to be broken. That covenant is never going to end. You're part of an everlasting covenant. You're part of an everlasting covenant because the one who drew up this everlasting covenant is an everlasting God. Read uh, Psalms 90 as it opens up. Moses is, uh, uh, is given as being the uh, human writer of this psalm, Psalms 90. But in verse 2. He said, before, thy, before the mountains were brought forth, and thou formest the earth and the world, he says, thou art from everlasting to everlasting. And the word everlasting there means vanishing point. He says, here from vanishing point to vanishing point, there's no way you can go back this way and never find the beginning of God. There's no way you can go that way and never find the end of God. God does not have a beginning. God doesn't have an end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. And before time ever began, God established an everlasting covenant in which he chose his people in Christ and gave them to his son. And that covenant was, can never be broken, never be altered. It can never end. It's an everlasting covenant. It's based upon an everlasting love. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3. I've loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. When God draws one of his children out of a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ, he does it on the basis of loving kindness. It's on the basis of loving kindness. It's not based upon circumstances. It's not based upon something that happens in life. It's based upon the loving kindness of God who's loved you with an everlasting love. That everlasting love was bestowed upon you in an everlasting covenant before time ever began. Hebrews 13 and 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our great Savior Jesus Christ, the shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Again, we have the expression everlasting covenant. But notice the blood that was shed was for, uh, based upon that everlasting covenant. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was not poured out. It was not spilled out. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed purposely by Christ. It's the blood of the everlasting covenant for people. They're embraced in the everlasting covenant. That's, that's what we're talking about here. It's, a everlast, it's an everlasting covenant that Jesus Christ came in here to uh, deliver his people that's embraced in that, you see. So God has commanded his covenant, how long? Forever. It's never going to end. It's never going to be altered. It's never going to be broken. I look in the uh, 33rd Psalm, and in verse uh, 9, it says, For the Lord spake, uh, for by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and the, and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You ever notice how that's recorded? By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Now you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you read about what God tells us about creation where God uh, brought something into existence when nothing before that existed. That's what creation is. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And you'll find 10 times in this chapter where it says, And God said, at the commander-in-chief speaking, And God said, And something happened. And God said, And something happened. As Recorded 10 times for us in Genesis chapter 1. And seven times in Genesis chapter 1, you'll find where it says, And God looked and saw it was good. And he saw it was good. He saw it was good. What he created was good. When you get to the very last saying of that, the seventh one, it says this, He saw it was very good. Very good. The commander-in-chief spoke in existence something that did not exist prior to that. Which meant God, who's the creator of the heaven, and God, who's the creator of the earth. He spake, listen now in verse 9. He spake, it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. And that's where I want it. He commanded, and it stood fast. When God gave the commandment, it took place. There was no hesitation. It happened immediately, instantaneously. Just when God said it, it took place at that very moment. At that very moment, he's the commander-in-chief. You go to 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, it says, And God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. No, what happened? He commanded the light to shine out of darkness. And here we're not talking about the light of the sun, the light of the moon. We're talking about God commanding the light. As God commanded the light to shine out of darkness, he hath commanded something else. He has commanded the light to shine in your hearts. That's in the work of regeneration, the work of the new birth. And God born you the spirit of God. Just like God command took place, when God commands life, it takes place. When I think about me and the commander-in-chief, I like to think about the creation of God. How he commanded and it stood fast. How he spoke and it was done. 
Now, if you come over to Colossians, let me just say this in Colossians 1, 7. It says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, he's before all things and by him all things consist. That word consist means he holds it together. If God didn't hold it together, it would already been <laughs> scattered, uh, you know, out in the universe. What holds the sun in its place? What holds the moon in its place? What holds the stars in their place? How does all this happen? Everything is in its place so, so uh, 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 you know, uh, so powerfully that uh, scientists were able to base all their calculations and all of that to be able to put a man on the moon. They couldn't have done that if everything wasn't in its place. Who holds it in its place? We sing that hymn, Who flung the stars out into space? Who holds everything in their place? The hymn writer understood that, did he not? In Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Who be in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. It's by the power of the word, brother, and these things came into existence. It's by the word of his power, or the power of his word. See, both ways, by the power of his word, it came into existence. Now, by the word of his power, all these things are maintained and remain just like they were and have been for over 6,000 years. Pretty amazing the sun hadn't burned out 6,000 years, isn't it? I think it's just as bright today as it was the day that Adam first saw it. Uh, just as bright today. The moon is just as bright, just as beautiful as it's ever been. God maintains it. They, all by him, all things consist. They're maintained by the power of God. He's the glue that keeps it all together. He's commanded and it was done. He's the commander-in-chief. And when it comes to overriding things in nature, he's the commander-in-chief. I look over in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17, and a famine is coming to the land in the days of Elijah. Elijah has prayed it wouldn't rain, and all of a sudden rain stops. And time marches on, and time marches on to where a drought begins to take place. And the Lord speaks unto Elijah and tells him to go to a certain place, a certain brook. He says, for I have commanded the ravens there to feed you. Now, a raven is a bird that doesn't care about doing anything for anybody but itself. It's an unclean animal, and God overrules its nature. He said, I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And Elijah obeys the Lord. He arises, does the word of God, does what God tells him to do. He goes to the place God has commanded him to go. And sure enough, here come the ravens bringing him food in the morning. Here come the ravens bringing him food at night. Right on schedule. Meal on wheels. Man didn't start it. God started a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, at the right time, here come the ravens bringing him something to eat. In the morning, at the right time, here come the ravens bringing something to eat. In the evening time, never fail, day after day after day, because God said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you there, to take care of you. Time came that water dried up out of the brook. And the Lord said unto Elijah, Arise and go to another place. He said, For I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. A widow woman. In the Old Testament, a widow was somebody that was being maintained by the people, not to maintain somebody else. But the Lord didn't just choose a person. He chose a woman. He chose a widow woman to supply the needs of Elijah. He said, I've commanded the widow woman to do it. He didn't just uh, suggest for her to do it. He commanded her to do it. Did, did that happen? When Elijah got to the place, he looked, here comes a woman gathering sticks. He believes right off the bat, this is the woman God has commanded. So he says unto her, says, can you uh, fix me a little meal? She says, well, I was going to prepare a last meal for me and my son. He says, go ahead and do as I have said, but first of all, make me a little meal. And the woman did exactly what he said. Now you think about Elijah the man asking a widow woman to feed him before he, she's going to feed herself and her son. That seems to be selfish. That seems to be uh, unreasonable. But not when you understand Elijah knew God had commanded this widow woman to feed him and take care of him. And there's the evidence of it. In a normal set of circumstances, it'd be like um, somebody coming up to you and you're going to fix one nice meal for you and your child. And they say, well, can you fix me one first? What are you going to tell them? Most likely you'll probably say, well, just hold on a minute. I'm going to feed my child first. Then I'll get around to you. A woman told me the other day she was in line to pay for her groceries. And this uh, other woman came up behind her. She had a couple of items. And she said unto her, she says, uh, I, uh, I don't have enough money to, to buy this. Uh, would you mind buying this for me today? 
Well, my thought was, well, what's she doing with it up there at the counter at this point? She didn't have the money to begin with. But anyway, she did. And the lady said, oh, okay, yes, I'll pay for it. And then she says, well, do you mind if I go back and get some pork chops? She says, yes, I do. <laughs> oh, my. But anyway, here's Elijah. And he asked the woman to make him a meal. That's not the same situation, is it? Because he knows God has told him that he's commanded a widow woman to take care of her. When it comes to the realm of God's providence, I'm glad there's a commander-in-chief, aren't you? And I'm glad that I'm not in control. I'm glad he's in control. And I'm glad to know that there's one in heaven, my friends, who's the captain of the Lord of hosts. He is the commander-in-chief. In the 16th chapter of the book of Exodus, you're going to find where the Lord is going to feed the nation of Israel in a miraculous way. He's going to bring manna for them in the morning time, and he's going to send quails in the evening time. But the Lord gives a commandment concerning it. He says, you'd go out and gather a certain rate, days one through five. But on day number six, you're to gather twice as much as you did on days one through five. Because on day seven, you're not to go out and gather anything. So I will bless the sixth day where to bring forth double so that it carry through the seventh day back to the next first day. Well, as you might know, there were those who did not get a double portion on the sixth day. They decided they'd just go out on the seventh day. When they did, they found nothing. And the Lord said, whatever you get, gather each day, you be sure you consume it all and eat it all. Because if you don't, do not, it'll breed worms and it will spoil and go to bad. Well, as you might know, there were those who did not consume it all and what they left. See, some of them thought, well, I'll just eat part of this. The next day, I won't have to go out and do any work. I won't have to go out and gather anything the next day. If I, if I go ahead and just eat half of what I gather today, it'd be enough to last me tomorrow. But see what they had left over. It bred worms, it stank, it ruined, it went to bad. God's commandments are important for us to keep, aren't they? How gracious God was to begin with. Giving them free food in the, in the manor in the morning time. And then giving them free food in the evening time. And just gave them the simple instructions that they'd go out and they'd gather. And they'd gather enough. Each day, there'd be something. And they're in the wilderness now. Understand this. They're in the wilderness. They don't have gardens to plant. They don't have uh, uh, crops they can uh, sow and gather. There's no Walmart out there, no Publix or Kroger or whatever. Uh, they're out there depending entirely on the Lord. And the Lord sends them manna in the morning. He sends them flesh in the afternoon. In the evening, quails that came down. He says, now just go out each day and gather this amount for yourself. Day number six, you gather twice as much. It'll carry over because on day number seven, you're going to gather nothing. Now let's remember this. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus chapter 25, we, you know, see in Exodus 16, we were observing the Sabbath day. In Leviticus 25, we're going to observe the Sabbath year. Every seven years, they allow the land to lay out. They were not to sow anything on the seventh year. And the Lord says, for I will command my blessings on the sixth year. Notice, I will command my blessings. I will not just bless the sixth year. I will command my blessings on the sixth year. And I'll command my blessings on the sixth year that would be good enough for three years. That's, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? You're going to sow the crops. You're going to gather your crops year one, two, three, four, five. And in year number six, God's going to bless you to have such a bumper crop. It's going to be enough for three years. On year number seven, you let the land lay out. Let the land lay out on year number seven. He says in year number eight, you're to sow your crop. But in year six, seven, and eight, I'll bless you enough for three years where you'll have enough to eat so what you sow in year number eight comes in in year number nine. There's no record where they ever did that. See, after 49 years, after seven, seven year cycles, that's 49. The 50th year has come about and the 50th year is called the year of Jubilee. There's no record where they ever celebrate the year of Jubilee. But there is a record where they spent seven years in Babylon because they did not let the land lay out every seven years as God said for 400 and... Uh, um, 90 years. So, uh, and so that's 70 years they took from the Lord and the Lord allows them to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. 
See, he's the commander-in-chief, isn't he? He's the commander-in-chief. Won't you notice here what Joshua does? Once again, the Joshua asked the question. He said, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Name as captain of the host of the Lord. Am I now come? The host of the Lord. That's an expression that's found in the Old Testament only, but it's found over 1,300 times. Over 1,300 times in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts is recorded for us. And there's three ways where he's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of hosts of creation. Let's go back there to Psalms 33, 6 just for a moment. It says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and the host of heaven by the breath of his mouth. He's the Lord of hosts of all creation. Creation has a host, or or a host. Uh, There's the sun, the moon, the stars, and the entire universe, and the Lord of hosts is over it. And then when Israel came out of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 12, it says, The host of the Lord came out, talking about the entire nation of Israel. He was the Lord of hosts of the nation of Israel. And he's the Lord of hosts of all his elect family. Of all his elect family, he's the Lord of hosts. Over 1,300 times this expression is used in the Old Testament. So he says, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. That identified him right there, did it not? What did Joshua do? Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Now he's going to tell him to loose his shoe from off thy foot for the place where thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Joshua is standing in enemy territory. Joshua and Israel has crossed Jordan's River. They're in the land of Canaan. At this time, it's enemy territory. It's territory God's going to give them. But right now, it's enemy territory. But when he takes his shoes off, he's standing on holy ground. The presence of God, my friends, changed it from enemy territory to God's territory. Joshua fell down at his feet and worshipped. I want you to see the sequence right here. You find where Joshua falls down and worships. And then Joshua is going to walk in the ways of the Lord. And then Joshua is going to go out and fight the battle. That's an important sequence. We come over to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, it's such a wonderful, beautiful book. It's got six chapters. There's a major division after chapter 3 before we begin in chapter 4. The first three chapters lays out the doctrine of grace as clear as anywhere in the Bible. And the last three chapters lay out our role of discipleship as clear as anywhere in the Bible. Let's notice how it starts out in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will, praise to the glory of his grace, where he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. What wonderful language, what great truth that is. God has chosen us, God has predestinated us, and God has accepted us. That's totally the opposite of what you hear out here in the religious world. Let's notice this. The world tells you that you must choose, choose God. Ephesians 1, 4 says he's chosen us according as he has chosen us in him. The world says it's based upon your will. Ephesians 1, 5 says it's based upon God's will. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6 we find the religious world saying you have to accept the Lord. Verse 6 says he accepted us. He accepted us. Praise to the glory of his grace. Where he's made us accepted in the beloved. How, how did they get it wrong? How did they get it mixed up? How did they get it backwards? I don't know. It's plain as a nose on your face, is it not? I want everybody to look real close. You got a nose on your face. It's just as plain as a nose on your face. It's God who's chosen us, predestinated us, and accepted us in Jesus Christ. And therefore we're redeemed by the blood of the Savior. And in verse 10, Paul says, In whom we've obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, according to him worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. When you begin to trace the balance of chapter 1 and then chapter 2, you come to chapter 3, and what does we find Paul saying in Ephesians 3.14? He said, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom all, whom all the families of the earth are named, the families of God are named. That's a picture of worship, isn't it? The very first thing that Paul, after writing all this, 
pinning all this down. He falls down. He says, I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom all the families of God are named in heaven and also in earth. And then we come to chapter 4. In chapter 4, the Apostle Paul starts off by saying, let us walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. We go from worship to walk. Notice the sequence. Walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Then we come to chapter 5, and we're given three other uh, postures for walking. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he tells us to walk in love as dear children. He then tells us in verse 8, For you were sometimes darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk ye therefore as children of light. And then we come down to verse 14, he says, And walk ye circumspectly as wise. We're to walk as dear children, we're to walk as children of light, and we walk circumspectly, and we're to walk according to the profession of our faith. All that comes beginning in chapter 4 and 5, and then we come to chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Be ye strong in the Lord in the power of his might, that you might stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, dominions, and, and uh, thrones, etc., etc., he says, done, having done all to withstand, let us all stand, putting on the whole armor of God, putting on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, girding our loins about with truth, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, having the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then above all things, above all things, praying with all prayer, supplication in the Spirit. <laughs> so what do we see in the sequence once again? There's worship. We're instructed concerning the fundamentals of the doctrine of grace. And then we walk as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that prepares us to do battle every single day out here against the wiles of the devil, against our human nature, against the devil himself, and the world in which we live. That's exactly what you got here in Joshua chapter 5. You got Joshua falling at the feet of the captain of the Lord of hosts and worshiping him. He says, loose thy shoe from off thy foot. Why well, you have shoes on your feet for walking, right? For the place where thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Notice how chapter 6 starts out. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given unto thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. He said, I have given you the king. I have given you the city. I have given you the mighty men of valor. And no battle has yet been fought. But God gives surety of it. God assures Joshua before the battle's ever fought, you've won. <laughs> he assures Joshua before the battle's ever fought, the city is yours. Before the battle's ever fought, the king has been defeated. How can you do such things that because God is God and God knows the future and God knew how it was all going to turn out, my friends, before it ever took place. Joshua's reminded where his place is. He's reminded that he is not in charge. God is in charge. That God is the commander-in-chief. You see, there's uh, people have... I, I've noticed in my own life, unfortunately, but in the lives of other people, uh, there's three different plans that people implement. Plan number one. You think it out. You consider it. You do your research. Etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and you form up your plan, and then you go out and do the very best of your ability to carry it out. That's plan one. Plan number two you form your plan, you do your research, do all your studying, everything, put your plan together, and then you'll think, Well, Lord, here's my plan. How about blessing it? Plan number three is say, Lord, I need a plan. Lord, give me a plan. Lord, what's your plan? What's your plan for my life, Lord? And ask the Lord to reveal unto you his plan, his will, and then ask him to be his will. He might bless his own plan for your benefit and your welfare, what lies before you. Joshua chose plan three. I want to choose plan three. How about you? Have you ever chose plan one? Don't look so guilty. Have you ever chosen plan two? I'm sure we've all had experience with plans one and two. But I can assure you, when I have chosen plan three, I've always come out a whole lot better. <laughs> How many times have you made a plan and then asked God to bless it when it wasn't even God's plan to begin with? 
It was your plan from all the way through, from beginning to end. Lord, give me a plan. What is your plan? What is your mind? What is your will for me? I need guidance. I need direction. And Lord, once you give it to me, I ask for you to go with me and give me your blessings upon the plan that you will give me. Joshua chose plan number three. What was the plan? Well, you know, God already given him one unusual plan. A lot of times people overlook this one. When you go back before they crossed the river Jordan, you know what God told them to do? That he told them to start with to stay there for three days. They just sat there before they crossed Jordan for three days. It was at flood stage. How are they going to get across Jordan to go into the land of Canaan? He let them just sit there and see that and observe it for three days for they would recognize if God don't give us away, we can't get over. So he says, when you see the priest bearing the ark and they come by, he says, you line up behind him and give yourselves 2,000 cubics or 3,000 feet. Stay 3,000 feet behind that you might see the way the Lord would guide you for you're coming to a place in a way that you do not have never known before. And when the priests put their feet in the water, you know what happened? That water just separated. That water just parted. And Israel crossed dry shot over to the other side and they did exactly what God told them to do. But now God's going to give them another plan. He's going to tell Joshua to line the people up. He says, put their armies first. He said, then you'll have the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant, and they'll be blowing seven trumpets of ram's horns. There'll be seven priests blowing seven trumpets. And then the people will follow them. And you'll go around this city one time a day for six days. On day number seven, you'll go around seven times. And then you will blow with the trumpets, and the city will be yours. And that's exactly what they did. Joshua gave the instructions. We find the army going first. Then we find the seven priests blowing the seven ram, uh, uh, trumpets of ram's horns. And then the people following. And they go around the city. And Joshua says, you're not to say one word. You'll be totally quiet. Now, if this wasn't a test, my friends, of, uh, of, of discipline and patience, I don't know what it is. People just don't like to be quiet. People don't like to be told not to say something. People like to talk. Believe me, they like to talk. You know, how many times have you seen, uh, maybe on Judge Judy, <laughs> if you watch that, <laughs> somebody's winning the case, and they start talking, and next thing you know, they lose it. <laughs> There's some advice that are given to lawyers in law school, and that's this, never ask your client a question that you don't already know the answer to. People like to talk. He says, you're not to say a word this entire time. I'm sure the people inside that city probably were mocking them, ridiculing them one thing and another. What are these people doing walking around our city like this? But after day number seven, they went around the seventh time, they blew my friends uh, with those horns there. The walls of that city come tumbling down flat and the captain of the, host of the, the captain of the host of the Lord's plan, it was successful and it worked. I'd like to go to the New Testament, just a couple examples in closing here this morning. If you remember from last Sunday, when we was talking about the thankful Samaritan, when those 10 lepers came to the Lord Jesus Christ, they addressed him as Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The word master there means chief, commander. When you read that word master in the New Testament, sometimes it means God, sometimes it means director, sometimes it just means a title. But three or four times it means commander. They said, Jesus, Master, Commander, have mercy upon us. And the Lord Jesus told them to go to the priest and show thyself, which you never did till you were cleansed. At this time, they're not clean. And they turned around and did what Jesus said, believing, I think, by faith, that somewhere between where they were and the priest, they'd be cleansed. And the Bible says, as they went, they were cleansed. The Commander cleansed them. And in Luke chapter 5, the Lord comes to where Peter and them been fishing. And they've been fishing, hadn't caught anything all night. And the Lord says unto Peter, says, launch out into the deep and let your nets down. And Peter says, Master, that word means commander. He's recognizing the commander-in-chief is speaking to him. He says, Master, 
He says, we have toiled all night long and caught nothing. But nevertheless, at thy word, we will do it. I just want to say to you and say to me here this morning, whether we understand it or not, when we read the word of God, let's just do it. Why? Because he's commander in chief. Master, we've caught nothing. You know why they hadn't caught nothing? Because the commander in chief had moved the fish away from the shallow water to the deep water. In his providence and his power, he moved those fish. So I said, why well, there's no fish there in shallow water? Jesus had moved them out of there. Moved them out of there. Now they're in deep water. The Lord knows where they're at. He says, go out to the deep water, let down your nets. And when they did, they caught some in the nets broke. And then they called for their fishing partners and another ship to come over there to help them. And they filled both ships. You know what happened? Both ships began to sink because the commander-in-chief was in charge. And then in Luke chapter 8, we read of the first of two storms the disciples were in. And in this storm here, we find where the Lord had told his disciples, Behold, let us go to the other side. That was his instructions. Commander-in-chief, let us, that's you, that's me, let's go to the other side. If the Lord ever tells you to go somewhere, he's going to go with you no matter what you're facing. You know what? You'll get to the other side. Let us go to the other side. And about the time they're, I'm going to assume, maybe halfway across, that seems like when everything breaks loose, right? Have you ever done a remodeling job? And you, you know, you, you want that wallpaper off the wall, right? And you want to put a nice pretty paint job on it. You want the wallpaper off the wall. And boy, you start peeling. The next thing you know, it's coming off about the size of your little nail. I've done that a few times. And I'm telling you, about when we got about a third to halfway through, I'm thinking, why did we ever start this? I cannot believe this. I start calling everybody I know, trying to get them to come over and, and help us out. I, that's just misery. Absolute misery. I remember the time uh, when I was in the tobacco field and we were topping and sucking tobacco and it was in the middle of July in the 90s. And I'd have been working about an hour and I, was, and I, I just stopped and I turned around and saw how far I'd come and turned around and seen how far I had to go. I sat down right there. I remember like it happened yesterday. I just sat right down and started weeping. <laughs> the tears were flowing down my eyes. I thought it was hopeless. I'm telling you, hopeless. Somehow or another, I got up and finished my rose out. The disciples right in the middle of this storm, where's the Lord? He's in the bottom sleeping. And they went down and said, Master, Commander, Master, carry us not that we perish. And the Lord, who would not be you know, awakened up by the storm, by the wind, and by the sea, when the disciples cried to him and prayed to him, that woke him up because he could be touched the feelings of our infirmities. And he came to the top of the ship and he gave a command to the sea to be still and the way subsided. And he gave a command to the wind to quit blowing. And the winds quit blowing because the commander-in-chief had spoken. I'm not in charge. You're not in charge. The president is not in charge. Congress, obviously, and the president are not in charge. But there's one in heaven that's always been in charge. And he's in charge. Forever be in charge. He's our commander and our commander-in-chief.